0: So we're heading into this new series that I'm excited about. Um, We've titled the series, The Spirit Empowers the Body of Christ. Uh, And over the next few months, as we go through this letter, each week we're going to be looking at how this Holy Spirit empowers the body of Christ to carry out Jesus's mission here on earth. I'm excited. This is one of my favorite books to go through and to to, to look at because it's just filled with practical application for us today. And We've been talking a lot in the last couple years about what it means for us as a church to increasingly to actually live and love like Jesus. And to me, there's no better book to look at in the book of Acts to see how the early church understood that, to see how the early church actually followed Jesus. How did they live and love like Jesus? And so we're going to look at a deep dive over the next few months and essentially up to six months or so as we go through this book and uh, for us to journey together through this incredible letter, to learn from the book of Acts, to learn from the church, to learn from what they did well, to learn from what they didn't do well. There's a lot of that as well. And for us to grow as a church and becoming increasingly the people that Jesus created us to be, amen? So as we head to the book of Acts, um, one of the things it reminds me of, I, I love football. Obviously, many people do. That's not a, a radical statement. Uh, I'm kind of a nerd about football, though, when I, when I watch it. I love to understand the plays and the coverage. I, under, I love to understand like the deeper about what's going on behind it. One of my favorite things in football is to listen to coaches or quarterbacks kind of give the insight as to the plays they run and the coverages they run to uh, get a kind of behind the scenes understanding of why they do what they do, of why they called a cover three or why they called a cover four, a dime package, or, or, or why they ran man in that situation, of, of seeing it from a coach's perspective of what they're doing. And because football is not just a matter of you know, big people with lots of talent and power running at each other. In some ways, it's more like chess uh, for, for understanding how the game works and the offensive schemes and defensive schemes. And it's a game of, of great strategy. And one of, the stra- uh, uh, one of the greatest minds behind strategy of football these days is a guy by the name of Mike McDaniel. Uh, he's the coach of the Dolphins. He's a prodigy of football, a young guy that is just brilliant. And I, I love being able to hear his perspective on the game. And so there's this incredible show that's out that's called Hard Knocks, that for those that love football, to not just kind of get excited about the game, but to actually see behind the scenes as a camera crew follows them behind week after week, and, and you get to see kind of the decisions behind the decisions, of, of why they make certain decisions, talking through plays, talking through decisions of what's going on. And to me, it's absolutely amazing, I'm addicted to it, is you get to hear the decisions behind the decisions, of, of why they do the things that they do. And it gives insight from that behind-the-scenes look, pulling back the curtain. And why do I share that? Because to me, that's kind of what the book of Acts is for me. It's a chance to go behind the scenes, behind the curtain, understand why is all this stuff happening. Because you can just look at the church and read through Acts and go, wow, a lot of cool stuff happened, amen, the church grew, awesome. Or we get to go behind the scenes and say, what brought about these things that we see in the church? What was going on? Why did they do the things they did? Why are they, are they organized in this way? Why are they doing this? We get to see the struggles. We get to see the infighting. We get to see all this stuff that normally you wouldn't see if you just watch a game on Sunday. But we get to be able to see the preparation that goes into all that they do in the victories. We get to see that what, what happened that caused this small group of scared disciples to turn into the movement that is Christianity today. And so today is just going to be an introduction to the book of Acts. And I want to set the scene today for where we're going in this series. And so as we jump in, let's just start in chapter 1, verse 1 is really all we're looking at today. And that starts off, and he says, In my first book I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So the book opens up of Acts, opens up with the author, Dr. Luke, saying, in my first book, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So we learn a lot about this letter right off the bat. So first, we learn that this book is, in fact, the second book. A better translation of that word book isn't actually a "word book, it'd be "volume." Because the idea of a book is something that can stand alone on itself. And that's not what the original Greek says about that. In the original Greek, when you read it, the word that's being used there conveys the idea that this is something that's in series, that it's, it's continuation. There was a first one, and it requires a second one. And that's what a volume is understood, that one on its own is incomplete. And that's what the Greek is saying here, that in the first account, which is the gospel of Luke that Luke wrote, he wrote, it says, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until jesus ascended into heaven and this is of critical importance because the letter of acts does not stand on its own it's the second volume after the first volume right luke expects his readers to be familiar with the book of luke without the gospel of luke acts makes no sense but on the other side without the book of acts luke is incomplete because it's just the first volume acts is not an afterthought that he thought oh i have some extra stuff i want to share It is something that he wrote in two volumes, in two parts. Think of how some movies kind of have that word, to be continued, at the end of it. It was awesome recently. Uh, I loved the absolute shock and horror upon one of my kids, all of them, one especially, as we were watching Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, if you have happened to see that incredible film. And uh, as you're watching, it seems like a long movie, and like halfway through the movie, all of a sudden, this picture comes up. Right? It seems like you're like right in the middle of this long film, and this picture comes up. And my, my son, the sheer aghast, his mouth dropped, the, the anger in his voice, like, what happened? And I'm like, no, it's, 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 it's a sequel. And he's like, they can't do that. I mean, he, and this was the greatest injustice he had experienced up to this point in his short life, was the fact, and when he heard... That it would be another year before a sequel came out, the rage within him of, that's not fair, they can't do that, that's not fair, how does it end, right? He couldn't understand this concept of a continuation of Volume 1 and Volume 2. But Acts is the gospel of Luke, continued. Scholars have pondered why it is split, and we don't know exactly sure, but amazingly, the the primary reason that most scholars would say is because Luke and Acts are the same length, and they just so happen to be the exact length that fits on one ancient scroll. And so it looks like Luke took two scrolls, filled them both up, one's volume one, and one is volume two. And this, 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 this really matters, the fact that they are connected to each other, because Luke tells us explicitly why he wrote it. He says, says, to give an account of all that Jesus began to do and teach in the book of Luke. And what that means then, if that's volume one, then volume two, the book of Acts, then gives us an account of all Jesus continued to do and to teach through the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest scholars the last hundred years is Dr. F.F. Bruce. And he writes in one of the the better commentaries on the book of Acts. He writes this, he says, the implication of Luke's words, being in verse 1, is that this second volume of Acts will be an account of what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension, no longer in visible presence on earth, but by his spirit in his followers. This is the core message I want to get across as we enter into the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not just the Acts of the Apostles. It's not telling a different story than the Gospels. It's the next chapter of the same story. It continues the story, what Jesus did and taught, but through the direct power of the Holy Spirit working through the church. But it's still, it's Jesus. It's still all about Jesus. You know, we spoke a few weeks ago, just before Christmas, that talking about the incarnation as we entered into Christmas, that everything that Jesus did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was the sermon right before Christmas. And that because of that, everything he did, it was all empowered by the Holy Spirit that he did. All the miracles, every crazy thing. He was fully human, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do all these things. And that's what the book of Acts continues. It's Jesus' calling for us to continue in that way to obey his calling for us now, or his body, his disciples, to continue by the power of the Holy Spirit to do the works of Jesus. Acts isn't about Paul. It isn't about Peter. It isn't about Philip. It isn't about the Apostles. The book of Acts is Jesus' continued work to build His kingdom here on earth through the church by the power of the Spirit. Now, Luke and the other other Gospels, they show Jesus' coming. They show Jesus bringing the kingdom. They show His death and His resurrection. And then Acts is going to pick up the story with Jesus' ascension. And we'll see the book kicks off right from the beginning with Jesus ascending into heaven. And from the right hand of the Father, He sends His Holy Spirit to empower His church to do His work. Many, Acts, or many scholars would consider Acts to be the fifth gospel. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. They don't separate it. Because this is the gospel of what the Holy Spirit does, or how Jesus works through the Holy Spirit. I love the way, N.T. Wright writes this in his commentary about Acts. As it opens up, he says, <clears throat> Luke is telling us with his opening sentence one of the most important things about the whole book which is now beginning. It is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. Notice some repetition here. The mysterious presence of Jesus haunts the whole story, Dr. Wright says. He says he is announced as King and Lord, not as an increasingly distant memory, but as a living and powerful reality. A person who could be known and loved and obeyed and followed. A person who continues to act within the real world. That, Luke is telling us, is what this book is going to be all about. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, but in truth, we should really think of it as the Acts of Jesus, part two. So I'm going to keep beating this drum the whole way through this book as we go through in the coming months. Because as we continue through this book of Acts, it's very easy to distance ourselves and just see it as a cool story. See it as lots of cool information and say, wow, they did a lot of really neat stuff. Isn't that awesome? Praise God, that's cool. And then we just move on. But that's not how it's meant to be understood. Acts is not about the story of Peter or Paul or Philip and Barnabas. It only only records a fraction of the things that those guys did. It tells some of their story, but they aren't the ones that drive the story. The Holy Spirit drives this whole story. These stories are just examples of what happens when ordinary people walk in obedience to Jesus and carrying out his will. Acts is written as an account of how Jesus' kingdom is expanding through the power of the Spirit in ordinary people. Acts doesn't glorify Paul and his anointing, but it glorifies Jesus and his kingdom and his empowering presence in the lives of his church. And so in this book, we must again and again encounter Jesus through his Spirit. In this book, it, it should change how we worship It should change the way we live. It should change the way we love as we see the reality that we are continuing Jesus' work here on earth. It's not just a story of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago or what people did 2,000 years ago. It's a living testimony of Jesus at work through his spirit in the lives of his people. It's a continuation of the gospel. It's a continuation of Jesus' earthly ministry. And I'm going to keep emphasizing that over and over again. Not the end of his ministry but really the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Acts shows us that a few years on earth was only the starting point for Jesus's ministry here on earth. It was only the introduction. Jesus was just getting warmed up for what he planned to do over the next thousands of years in his time here on earth. Bigger and better things were still to come. And that's why I want to go through this book as a church. That we aren't just studying history. But we're getting a behind-the-scenes look at how Jesus worked through broken people by his spirit to build his kingdom. So I love that song we were singing today. You are the same God. I didn't know we were singing that worship song this morning. I, I was so, I mean, I was just so filled with the spirit of singing that this morning and so stoked because that's basically what the book of Acts is about. You are the same God. You were a healer then, you're a healer now, you are the same God. As we were singing that worship this morning, just over and over again, I just, oh, my head, I couldn't, I I, I couldn't even express with words the Lord. I'm just like, yes, we'll do it today. Because you're the same God. We're continuing the same story. We are just as broken, just as fearful, just as ignorant as the people who were writing these stories about 2,000 years ago. They were ordinary people empowered by the spirit the difference is they were in a far more difficult place than we are today and so i want to touch now uh, for a few minutes and and kind of put our bible nerd hat on and and talk about the background of this book as we enter in because their situation was much more difficult than ours so starting with in verse 1 1 acts opens up we saw that says in my first book i told you theophilus so we see that luke is writing this letter to a man named theophilus It's the same person he writes the first volume of Luke to. So the the gospel of Luke opens this way in verse 1 in chapter 1. It says, many have undertaken, this is how Luke opens up his first gospel, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So he's saying many other people have written about the gospel, he's referring to Matthew, Mark, and John, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and the servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, remember Dr. Luke was a doctor, he was meticulous, he loved details, he says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And so we can see that both letters were written to the same person, Theophilus, and we don't know exactly who Theophilus was, But most scholars were in agreement that because of the title being used there, O Most Excellent Theophilus, that he was likely a Roman government official of some kind, a Roman dignitary of some kind, who was either a young Christian, a recent Christian, or someone who was very curious about Christianity because he's very open. He's heard a lot. He's been taught a lot. And now Luke is writing these two volumes to him to give an orderly account of all that's happened. Now, Luke is the doctor who writes with all these things, and he's writing to this Roman dignitary to explain what's going on. And that's important to understand, because during the time that Luke and Acts are being written, there is increasing persecution and hatred of the church in the Roman government. And it's about ready to get ramped up to crazy levels, where Christians are about to be slaughtered in mass, where all 12 of the apostles will die a martyr's death except for John himself. And in this book of Acts, as it comes to a close, we get a window into that persecution that's coming. It says, as, as the center of the empire is kind of right at that tipping point, as this book comes to a close. As Paul is in prison in Rome, if you know anything about history, we're literally a couple of years away from Nero snapping, killing Paul, and trying to wipe out the entire church. And then decades of the church just being decimated with tens of thousands of Christians being slaughtered over the next many, many years by each emperor. And as the book comes to a close, it says in Acts 28, verse 22, Paul just arrives in Rome. He begins talking of his old journey from Jerusalem to Rome. As he arrives there, and it says, and as he's preaching to the people, they say, we want to hear what you believe in Acts twenty-eight twenty-two, For the only thing we know about this movement, referring to Christianity, they told Paul, is that it is denounced everywhere. So the people of Rome, they admit that they know very little about Christianity. And remember, this is about 30 years after Jesus died. And so that means it's, there, there's no internet back then, right? There were no newspapers in the same way. It's a long walk from Jerusalem to Rome, and it took a while for the message to get there. And there was one primary message that was being communicated that came about Christianity, and that's people hate Christians. Why would they hate Christians at that time? The only thing they knew is they hated Christians at that time. And they were hated for a number of reasons, but primary among them was that the Christians only served one God. And to a Roman, that was considered to be an atheist right, because they served so many gods, that someone that only worshipped one and didn't worship and serve all the Roman gods, including worship the Roman emperor, they were considered atheists and they were hated. But that led to the other reason. Some of the primary reasons they were hated is because the Christians were countercultural. They were hated because they had a radically different sex ethic than the people of Rome at that time. And this is one of the things, because of their different view of morality, that made them hated more than anything else, because of the way they viewed so many aspects of morality at those times. And the people despised Christians because of how different they were. They despised them for their thoughts and their beliefs and other stuff. They hated them, not knowing that much about them. They also hated them because it was told that they were people, there were rumors going around that Christians were cannibals. Like, that's a weird rumor. Where does that come from? Well, what is one of the few things they do about Christians was they gather together in these rooms, and what did they do? They ate the flesh and drank the blood of somebody, right? That was literally a thing that went around. So a major thing was that they were cannibals eating the flesh and blood of someone, which we get to do later on today. Um, but... And so they were hated. In some ways, you think about this, there's a lot of parallels you can see for the way that they were thought about by the society and the Roman government that we could draw parallels for our situation today and how the society feels about us and other things, except it was a hundred times worse back then. In fact, I always get confused when I hear Christians say things like, can you believe what the government is doing today to Christians? Or can you look at society? How crazy it is. It's never been this bad. I'm like, have you ever read your Bible? Like, go back and look what was going on back then. It was a thousand times worse. And yet, with all the persecution, with all the hatred by all the society, it was the most fertile soil in which the gospel flourished. The persecution, being hated by their neighbors and hated by their government, being misunderstood, being marginalized, not having a voice, being slandered publicly constantly was the most fertile soil ever for the gospel. In fact, it's amazing throughout history and still across the world today, times when the church is slandered and maligned and hated and persecuted are times when the church is at its best. It flourishes the most when it's the most persecuted, when it's the most reviled, when it's the most hated, when it's the most beat down, In fact, historically, it seems the church doesn't ever really do well with power. It never seems to thrive in times of comfort and ease, but in times of difficulty and persecution. It's a crazy thing to think about. And so Luke is writing this letter to the government official who's been interested in Christianity. And what has been his message Right, his TikTok feed has been blowing up with constant videos of what terrible people Christians are. That's been the message that he's been getting in Roman government official is all these terrible things. And so what is Luke doing? He's writing this letter to set the record straight, to say, this is what Jesus actually did and taught, to give an orderly account. This is what he actually calls his people to do. And then he writes Acts and he says, this is what the people of God, this is how they're actually living this out. Right. This is, this is what actually happened. Don't listen to the voices of the people around you. This is the true story of how God's people have received the teaching of Jesus. And now what Jesus continues to do here on earth over these last 30 years. To give that orderly account. To show Theophilus who Jesus is. To show this Roman official to counteract all the lies of the people around him. And I show them this is what it means to follow Jesus as Jesus continues to work and as the spirit continues to move. All right. Another point I want to make as we jump into this book. Um, and that's as we study this letter, we need to remember that this letter is written as an orderly account of the things that happened. And just because something happens in the letter does not mean that that is what should have happened or what was good to happen or what needs to happen at all times. And so it's just a tip on studying the Bible that I recognize many of us are at very different places in our our faith, and we have a lot of new Christians in our body, and that's awesome, of people just journeying in their faith. And so I want to talk a little bit about Bible study just as a big picture. And in fact, the best book, if you want to get further into Bible study, that's ever been written on how to study the Bible is by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Uh, I mean, this is basically required reading in pretty much every single Bible school you ever go to a first year, but it's very accessible. Gordon Fee is my favorite theologian in history, um, I guess outside of Paul or the early early apostles, but uh, an incredible book. And in this book, one of the primary things that they really talk about is the idea of types of literature or genres in the Bible. And that being the idea that the Bible is written into 66 different books, as many of us know, but many of them are in different kinds of genres as we study Scripture. And so, for example, half of the New Testament is written as letters or as epistles. And so that's what we've been looking at for the last year or so, as we were looking at through the book of Ephesians. We went six months last year going through that. And an, an epistle or a letter is a letter written by someone under the divine inspiration of the Spirit. And as they're writing, they are correcting and rebuking and encouraging the body, saying, here is what God is telling me to do. Here is what God is telling me to speak to you. And so, when they say, when Paul says in an epistle, you need to do this, we know that God is speaking those things on his behalf, and we can look at that, understand what it meant to them, and then we apply that directly to our own life. And so, but the Bible contains things other than epistles. There are many other types of literature and genres in Scripture. You have things like prophecy, you have things like poetry or the law, or wisdom literature, or the Gospels. You have this really funky kind of literature called apocalyptical literature, which gets real fun. That's the book of Revelation, and parts of Daniel, and Zechariah, and Ezekiel, with weird images, and beasts, and all this other kind of stuff. And someday, we're going to get to Revelation. I can't wait to go through that one of my favorite books. Um, But then you also have this of literature called narrative. And in this kind of writing, it's different than an epistle like Ephesians, because narrative is telling a story. Giving an orderly account, you could say. It explains what happened and what people did or said. But it does not always share what people should have said or what they should have done or whether what happened is right or the thing that should happen all the time and should keep on being done. And that means that narrative by its nature is descriptive of what happens. It's not prescriptive of what should happen. And this is really important when we head into a narrative to recognize. Because oftentimes the Bible says things and it's not giving, it doesn't give any commentary on the rightness or the wrongness of what happens. It just says, this is what happened. Or it's, we see people doing things, and it doesn't comment whether we should be doing the same thing or not. Right? And so we have to then look at that in a bit of a different light to be able to understand. So, for example, when there's, in this book of Acts, we'll see there's a great story between Ananias and Sapphira. When they come in, and they, uh, get, they get killed in the moment. God kills them, knocks them out, because they lied about how much money they were giving to the church. So if that was an epistle or something else, maybe we read that and go, wow, if someone lies about how much money they're giving to the church, we must stone them or kill them, right? That would be a really weird thing to take away from that book. But it's a narrative. It's saying what's happened. It's not saying that that's what should happen, praise the Lord, right? Or other examples. We see Paul having a handkerchief ministry in this book. Right. We see his handkerchief goes out and people take his handkerchief. They send it to others and then it goes and they get healed when they touch his handkerchief. And so we can read that and go, wow, we need to start the Northview handkerchief healing ministry and we need to start sending out handkerchief. And I know people that have done that because that's how they read the text. Or a more practical example that we see in this book that the church meets at minimum every single week to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But frequently they're meeting nightly every single night and having communion and sharing communion together. Now, when we read that, that our immediate response, I've I've talked and taught through this book before, people say, oh, now we need to take communion every day. But no, that's not what it's saying. Just because they did it does not mean this is now precedent that's being set. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. And it's important to understand that when we head into a narrative, especially with lots of the Old Testament books and others, there's some really funky stuff that happens that is not good, that we have to be aware when we study this. And so, as we go through a narrative like this, we need to see that, What God is describing, he's describing what happened, and so we must enter into the story to better understand it and then to see what we're supposed to do. In fact, I remember teaching through the book of Acts years ago. I was in Cambodia uh, working with a, a group of pastors at a conference, we were teaching through this book, and as we we're going through, the pastor was getting super excited. And I had these guys who were ready, like, we should just stop meeting right now, and let's go out, because we need to go raise the dead, we need to go see people healed, we need to go see thousands saved, and they were just stoked and fired up. Let's go out and do this. It was like day one of the, of the thing, and I'm like, wow, what happened? Because um, they were just reading, like, yes, let's go out and do this. That's better than any of the learning we need to do. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. And so we began having this incredible discussion as we were there about as, as they saw these promises, that yes, they, there are, or they, saw, they, they read the book of Acts, they saw it as promises. They saw it as kind of like a divine vending machine. This happened, and therefore, I need to go out and copy what's happened. And therefore, I should expect the same results. And we had this great time of discussion of talking about the fact that Acts is not just a book of promises. right? It's not a book of saying, this is what you are supposed to do but it's an orderly account of what happened. It's a narrative of what happened at that time. So it's more than just trying to copy what we see, but to understand what Jesus was doing in and through the church back then, to learn how Jesus instructed through the Holy Spirit and how he walked with them and interacted with them, to see how they treated one another, to see what areas the Lord was bringing correction to and what areas he was releasing them in. And then to ask the tough questions of, are we willing to do what they did? Are we willing to live as they lived? We see that they were united in body and spirit. We see that they were devoted to prayer. We see that they were caring for one another. We see that they were giving sacrificially, radically obedient, and specifically focused on reaching the lost. And at that very conference where I'd been teaching, there'd been a ton of infighting and over kind of a, what may, for us may seem weird, but they're in an area of great poverty. It's quite normal. The, the biggest area of fighting that time was they were complaining about the food. There wasn't enough of it and it wasn't good enough quality. And the reason for that was that as the pastors came, most of them didn't bring any money to pay for the food. They were very poor, and they didn't want, and they expected the organizers to pay for it all, and they were fighting back and forth, and there was really it got really kind of nasty at one point. And then one of the pastors asked, I loved it as we're having this conversation, he says, how can we sit here and want the fruit that we see in the story if we aren't willing to actually live the way that they lived? Does that make sense? They're looking at this book of Acts They're seeing all these incredible fruits, which they'd already been saying, let's go out and do that stuff. But then he stood up to every front of everyone and said, but we're not actually willing to live the way that they've lived. We're not willing to adopt the practices of the early church. We just want the fruit that they experienced. And it was such a powerful moment in that conference as they recognized that these are not promises to cling to, but Acts is a story to enter into. And so as we look at this letter of Acts, we're going to be reading this orderly account as a body and some of the events that happen. And for homework, I'd encourage you, over the next two weeks, read through the book of Acts, just at your own pace, but at least that way as we're entering in, at least you have the big picture context recently in your head. But as we read this book, it is our job to enter into this story as well. Because one of the coolest things of all in Acts, of all the amazing things, you know, it opens up by picking up right at Jesus' ascension at the end of the book of Luke, Jesus ascends, he continues his ministry going forward, but it finishes 28 chapters later with Paul in prison, under house arrest, preaching the gospel, he's he's under house arrest, but basically unhindered in the sense that he's still allowed to preach because he's doing it from his home. The whole empire is hearing about Jesus, it finishes this way, chapter 28 verse 30 says this, for two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented home and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's how the book of Acts ends. There's no conclusion. There's no final. There's no wrap-up. There's no ending to it all. And why is that? And to me, this is what's so cool, because Acts is just volume two. Acts is written so that we enter into the story as the readers of it. For us to journey alongside each of the people in the story. To see how the Spirit empowers them to do the work of Jesus. But not for us just to learn about what happened. For us to be spectators and, and, and just watch the events unfold. But Acts is written so that we become participants in this story. Because Luke didn't intend for the, this, this Luke and Acts to be a two-volume series. Because there's another volume out there. Volume 3. And volume three is currently being written. So a lot more than fits on two scrolls or one scroll, but it's been written for the last 2,000 years as a work in process. Much more than we could ever imagine fitting on, on a single scroll because we are all part of writing volume three right now. And this is what I love so much about this book. Volume three begins with Paul in prison as we find him at the end of Acts chapter 28, preaching the gospel. And then very soon after that, volume three includes Paul's martyrdom, being killed by Emperor Nero. It includes the martyrdom of Peter and so many others who died for their faith. It tells the stories of the saints of old as they picked up the mantle and partnered with the Holy Spirit, allowing Jesus to be glorified here on earth through their lives and through their work. And then it continues on, and each page tells another story of someone partnering with Jesus allowing his kingdom to go forth as the Holy Spirit works through them here on earth. On volume three's pages are written the stories of the early church, and in volume three is written the stories of Augustine and Teresa of Avila and so many others that we'll never know the name of until we reach in heaven. It tells the story of the Middle Ages, the Reformation. It tells the story of John Wycliffe in and, and the 1300s being burned alive at the stake because he was willing to translate the Bible into a language the people could understand. It, it tells the story of Martin Luther and Jan Hus and, and, and John Calvin and countless others who partnered with the Holy Spirit in seeing the gospel go forth. It's got endless stories in Volume 3 of Chinese and African and South Korean believers who were partnering with Jesus and seeing the kingdom go forth, and it's got endless stories of people that we don't even know the names of from closed countries of Turkmenistan and Iran and Saudi Arabia and northern Nigeria and other places where it's illegal to be a Christian, and people are giving their lives even today for the gospel that it would go forth, and Volume 3 also has an orderly account as the gospel comes to America and Guys like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and Billy Graham, you know, take the gospel and spread it across this land. And later on in volume three, it has the story of, of Jan Hedinger, Steve Mitchells, right? As Northview Community Church has written in there and has our story as we continue to pick up that mantle. And in volume three, it includes the story of the great Saint Janice Downs, right? It includes Steve Doughton. Chris Langkow and Andy Smith, Beth Wright and Alexis Fallon. It includes the story of so many people. Each and every one of us is written into this as we partner with the Holy Spirit. Johnny Smith and Katie Chu and little Leora Handley. As our story is written in, as we continue the work of Christ and partner with him, Because this story of Acts, it becomes our story. The story how Jesus continues to move through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit is every single one of our stories. We get to keep writing these entries with our lives, of how we partner with the Holy Spirit and seeing his kingdom come. And this is our calling as followers of Jesus. To continue on the work of Jesus here on earth. He's not done for us to keep writing this story with our lives, to be living testimonies. Luke and Acts are just the first and second volume of the story of Jesus' work work here on earth. They were the beginning of the story. We get to keep writing it, and that is so awesome. Acts is not over. Jesus' work on earth did not end at the cross or at the ascension. He was just getting started, people. And so this is why I want us to go through this book of Acts that tells the work of Christ here on earth through his spirit so that we can enter further into the story for his story to become our story. That's what the book of Acts is about. It's seeing people entering into the work of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and seeing the spirit empower the church. Amen. So as we finish this morning, we're going to have the privilege of entering into the story in another way as we're going to take communion now. And so it's going to be, communion is about to be passed. Um, Communion is is such an incredible gift to us as a body, that Jesus has given us not just to remember him, not just to watch and be spectators, but like the book of Acts, it's given us as something for us to enter into, to join into, to participate in. And Jesus calls us to do this regularly. For the reality of what Christ has done in communion, he, and what he continues to do, it to be imprinted deeply within us. Communion is a visceral act to be imprinted within us the reality of what Christ has done to better enable us to enter into his story. And we're going to see in the coming weeks as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that the central role that communion played in the life of the church. It wasn't just a somber activity they engaged in. It wasn't a church ritual of some kind, but it was part of their weekly and often their daily rhythm of gathering was to be able to do this. Yeah, go ahead and pass that around. Whenever the church gathered together, which was very frequent back then, they would take communion as part of their meal. It was just part of their, the thing that they would do, that whenever they gathered, it would be part of gathering together to be able to say, we are going to make Jesus the center of this. Which is such a cool and beautiful thing to do. Because it was this visceral and constant reminder of what Christ has done. And what he was continuing to do around them. Because communion is not a passive act. It's not something that we just we do as an idea. It's not something where you just drink some juice and eat a cracker. It's not something we're just like, oh, Jesus, thank you for what you did. Communion, the way it was intended, was a place for the body to enter in and engage in the life and the death of Christ. To be visceral, to be practical, to be something that would be more than just an idea, but something to join in with. It's the body coming together to partake in the life and the death of Jesus. To remember what Christ has done, to remember what he continues to do, Not as spectators, but to do it as participants in the gospel story of Jesus. And so, Scripture tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples around him and he shared a final meal. And at this meal, he broke a piece of bread with them. And as he broke the bread, he said, this bread represents my body that is broken for you. And he said, whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me, Take this bread a remembrance of my body that is broken for you. And so, Jesus, we take this bread as a remembrance of your sacrifice and your body that is broken for us. a Remembrance for all that you have done. I love that Jesus made this uh, so we literally ingest it becomes part of us to take part in to join into the reality of his life being given for us and then jesus took the cup of wine and he said this cup represents my blood that is shed for you and he said whenever you gather take this in remembrance of me giving my life for you let's take Jesus, thank you that you came to give us life, not from a distance, but you came and gave your life for us, and then you invited us to journey with you, Lord. So as a body, Father, may you continue to draw us deeper into the reality of what it means to be your church. We don't want to be spectators. Where there is a spectator mentality of standing on the sidelines, just kind of watching what's happened, Lord. May you wake us up, may you shake us. As we continue in the following weeks and going through this book of the power of your spirit, Lord, may you wake us up to the reality of your movement around us. Where there is apathy, Father, shake us. Help us to see that you are the same God. And just as we enter into communion and we take part in your life and your death, Jesus, may we take part in your story. May you challenge us to, to wake up May you challenge us to step out. May you challenge us to not see your word and your ways as good ideas and principles, but as life, as calling, as life itself. Thank you, Jesus, for the freedom and the privilege we have to follow you, to know you, to walk with you, and to partner with you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.